You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants here for the ninth Sunday after Pentecost, in which I keep saying the same thing every week, Father Sebastian. We are in Pentecost and uh, continue to follow that theme. Now with this real look at the, the church, the nature of the church, uh, the mission of the church, and an invitation to the apostles and through the apostles to us to participate in the work and ministry of Christ, as we will see both in the gospel and in the epistle text regarding uh, Peter walking on water, and then the, the building of the church out of the living stones. So let's take a look uh, at Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 is our gospel text. Matthew 14, verse 20 through, sorry, 22 through 34. And then our epistle text is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 through 17. Okay, so let's open up to Matthew chapter 14. Father Sebastian, you got your Bible there on you. Yeah. Good. You got your cell phone. Wonderful. Chapter, Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 through 34. At that time, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and cross the sea ahead of him. While, his, while he dismissed the crowd, and when he had dismissed the crowd, he went up the mountain alone to pray. And when it was late, he was there alone. But the boat was in the midst of the sea, buffeted by the waves for the wind was against them. But in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking upon the sea, and the disciples, seeing him walk upon the sea, were greatly alarmed and exclaimed, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. Then Jesus immediately spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. But Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, order me to come to you over the water. And he said, Come. Then Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water to come to Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind, he, he was afraid. And as he began to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And Jesus at once stretched out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind fell. But those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Crossing over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Father Sebastian, as usual, if you can give us, kind of place us in the context of, of the Gospel of Matthew here, chapter 14 and the surrounding texts. Yeah, this is a very interesting passage. It has a lot of Old Testament background to it as well. The, this is a story that occurs right in between the two multiplication stories in Matthew's Gospel. And for what we're looking at right now, most importantly, is this first multiplication. So there was a multiplication of the five loaves 
for the 5,000, the 12 baskets picked up. And then Jesus sends his disciples into the boat and they go, and Jesus goes up to the lonely place to pray. You and I have been there many times and uh, hopefully there'll be a lot of people signed up on the, for the pilgrimage already who will be able to go to that lonely place with us in that nice cave there. So Jesus was sitting there in the cave praying and he's looking out, as you can see very easily from that cave, the uh, Sea of Galilee, and the storm comes in as usual. These storms come in very quickly from the Mediterranean, and of course, there's a problem, and Jesus comes to them on the water. There's an Old Testament theme here that, that we can see in Matthew's gospel, and also very clear in John's gospel as well, where the Passover, this multiplication of loaves, especially in John's gospel, we can see that connection to that Passover. We know from John's gospel this occurred during the, one of the Passovers of Jesus' ministry. And just like the Passover in Egypt, when they left Egypt after the Passover, they crossed the Red Sea. They crossed the sea, and there was, of course, uh, before they arrived at the sea or before they crossed the sea, there was a problem. The, the, the soldiers of Pharaoh are coming, and Moses tells them, fear not. Yahweh will save you today. You have nothing to fear. Just stand, be still. And so you get that sense of this in Matthew's gospel as well, that we've, we've, we've celebrated the Passover, and now we're crossing the sea, and here is Jesus, the presence of God among them, saving them like he did in the Exodus story. You know, we're going to pull up the map here just so we can see and focus your attention. You'll see the Sea of Galilee here and Capernaum. It's so interesting, fathers, we got the map up here to realize the division. You can see this here, the division between the sons of Herod the Great, who divided the eastern side and the western side of the Sea of Galilee, then the western side where we see Capernaum and the area where Jesus, that, that uh, Mount of Beatitudes area and so forth. So he oftentimes will, will move across this sea, get in the boat, and it's exactly what happens here. He multiplies the loaves and fishes, and of course, as soon as the miracle takes place, as usual, they, they, they proclaim him as, as Messiah, and he says, you got to get out of here. So he gets his, his apostles in the boat to get out, because otherwise they're going to be arrested. And then Jesus retreats to this place, and you can see this cave. We've shown, shown pictures of this before, this place just above the sea. I love to sit there, and it's just, it's like this beautiful vantage point that you're thrown, and you, over which you can just see the whole Sea of Galilee. And so he could literally see the apostles out there in the sea, and he could see the storm roll in, and then see them start to struggle uh, with it. And it's to, to understand that geography, to understand that geography. And as you're saying, these are storms which will come up during certain seasons there on the Sea of Galilee, very unpredictable weather that comes across exactly from that direction, from the east, crossing over to the west, and uh, and, and then takes over the, the apostles. And then the waves are tremendous, as, as we read about here in this text. You know, the church fathers, you know, Father Sebastian, you've given us, as we try to get in these, these studies, this kind of historical context. The church fathers are reading, read this story on kind of another level, and that is to an, a level of interpretation by which they see the life of the church in this story. And we're going to get more into this in the epistle that we're going to look at also. They consistently point out this, the boat as a symbol of the church. Of course, the apostles are in the boat. They're, in a sense, guiding the boat, but 
the waves and the storms all around them representing the world. We, 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 you know, the baptismal font, the place of the waters is always the place of, of the tomb of death, of darkness. And here those waves are coming up and the fathers of the church talk about this, uh, the passions and all the troubles of the world, just buffeting the boat, attacking the boat, but there's safety inside. And then Jesus comes walking on the water, proving his divinity. This title, they, they, you are the son of God. And maybe you could comment on that for us just a little bit, that, what that would have meant to a, to a Jew of those days to call him the son of God biblically. But the fathers of the church going another step say, look, this is clearly the creator of the world. In fact, I believe it's in Sirach that says that he is the one who walks upon the waters. And then notice, notice that he invites Peter. We focus upon Peter's failings. And I'd like you to comment upon this a little bit, Father Sebastian, because Peter's given sometimes a hard, uh, given a, a tough time here for his lack of faith. And clearly he struggles. But there's another way of looking at this text in which, in which Peter is invited to walk upon the waters as Jesus does. And if we take the interpretation of the fathers that Jesus, in a sense, calm is, is the, it's the presence of, of the creator of the world that calms the waters around him. And, and that is calms the, the attack of the, of the world and protects the church and protects his people. Peter is now invited out upon those same waters to participate in that kind of ministry, which is proper to the one who is the creator of the world. And we're going to we'll follow that up. I bring that up because of this, uh, this the epistle that's coming and, and the focus the church places here now upon the nature of the church and, and, and then the participation of the apostles. And then through that, each one of us participating in what the church is and the ministry of what the church does. And Father, maybe you could comment on those two things before we move to the epistle. What it would have meant to, for the, for a, a a, uh, a Jew of those days living in the Sea of God to call Jesus the Son of God with their biblical background, but then also Peter's place here and his struggle as, as, he, as he sees all the problems going on around him, all the, the waves of the world, if you will, and begins to sink in the water. So there's a lot there, but just quickly, Son of God is a title for the, the Son of David. It's one of the Messianic titles, and it goes back to Second Samuel 7 in this context here. So in the Old Testament, the sons of God are those who are covenantly following God or yoked to him. And son of means to be a follower of. It's a, one of the idioms in Hebrew. So, uh, so the, the king of the line of David was, was adopted into the line of God. God says, I will be his father. He shall be my, they shall be my children. They shall be my sons. And so, therefore, David's sons being adopted into, into God's family, God's going to take care of them. So they have this title, Son of God. And we find that particularly in use in reference to the, to the, uh, to the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed king, especially as he is to come. So in the New Testament here, we find Son of God used that way in a number of places. A classic example of that is in John's Gospel when Nathaniel sees Jesus as rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is in John chapter 1. So that's the first kind of layer as you were talking about, historical layer. But there's more going on there. They're not just simply realizing that Jesus is 
the long, a long-awaited Messiah, a long-awaited Christ, a return of this kind of dynasty of David that will now continue on from here. The prophets in the post-exilic period had spoke, spoke of the coming Messiah in, with divine attributes. We can think of, for example, Daniel 7, when the one like a son of man rides on the clouds to ancient days enthroned on, in God's throne. So there's a number of places in the post-exilic prophets where they start to see the long-awaited return of the Messiah in very divine ways. And so for them, just even at a very Jewish level here, when they identify him as the son of God, they are identifying him as something much more significant than, say, Solomon or one of the sons of David. They're realizing he is the long-awaited fulfillment of all the prophets of the return of the kingship of, for Israel. But at the same time, as you, as you noted, you find also in the text, even in the New Testament text, you find the authors, someone like Matthew here, is expecting us to hear two layers of meaning. He's here, we hear the characters in the story speaking, and we know we can kind of get a sense of my, what might have been in their mind at that moment, and maybe some of the questions and further thoughts. But we also know something greater. Truly, he is the Son of God. He's not simply a son of David adopted into the line of God. We know the, we know the infancy narrative. This is truly the Son of God from all eternity. And so that's the kind of the, the first layer of meaning in the historical, you know, Jewish context with these Jews in a boat, but also remembering this is a Christian text being written by a Christian for Christian audience, expecting us to hear that double meaning, which is, of course, where the fathers go with this. And then that image of Peter that you mentioned, you know, sometimes the, you'll hear in uh, apologetics, sometimes someone will, you know, as a, as we talk about the importance of the role of Peter in the early church as a leader among the apostles, which is quite obvious there, some, sometimes Protestants will say, you know, look, Peter, Peter making mistakes all over the place. Yeah. And look, and look at this story. Peter, he's the man of little faith. Well, what about the other guys in the boat? The other apostles are cowering, frightened, like little children in the boat. Peter has the confidence to say, Lord, if it is you, then call me out on the water. So, so this is not actually a, a story that denigrates, you know, the role of Peter or something like that. It actually, it, it's a great passage that talks about something, a, a very important message, I think, for us as Christians today. And I think you have maybe a yeah. few words to comment there. Yeah, the, <laughs> Peter gives us this beautiful example of coming to Christ and keeping our eye upon him and realizing that our strength is in him. And so much going on in our life, there's so much struggles we face so many struggles we face regarding the spiritual life and all the distractions of the world, everything. I think this image of the boat, of the apostles, of Jesus walking on the water is just so helpful to us in our spiritual life today. If we just read this text in, as, the, as the fathers of the church did in that kind of divine aspect in which we realize um, that, 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 that safety and salvation is, yes, found within within that boat, protecting from the world. So a, a warning to us to keep, make sure we remain there, but then to realize it is Jesus who calms all of those passions of the world and, and then invites us. And there's a beautiful thing. Peter actually does walk on water in this passage. We always focus upon him sinking. 
but he actually walks on water, which is which is which is mind blowing, right? And uh, because he's not the creator of the world, and for Jesus to walk on water, I can understand that one. But here he walks upon the water, which is such a beautiful gift that Jesus allows us to stand with him, in a sense, to stand in his shoes and to participate in his creative act. And this is, we're going to get into this in the epistle about the nature of the church and our invitation to participate in this assembly of God, this communion with Christ in which we are built up into the temple of God, in which he gives what is proper to him to us and, and allows us to participate in that. So there's much to meditate upon here in this text, this image of Peter walking upon those waters. One of the church fathers that came across this beautiful quotation, I'm going to share it with you and then we'll move on to the epistle. He says, Meanwhile, the boat carrying the disciples, that is the church, is rocking and shaking amidst the storms of temptation. With the adverse wind, while the adverse wind rages on, that is to say, its enemy, the devil, strives to keep the wind from calming down. But greater is he who is persistent on our behalf, for amid the vicissitudes of our life, he gives us confidence. He comes to us and strengthens us, so we are not jostled in the boat and tossed overboard. For although the boat is thrown into disorder, it is still a boat. It alone carries the disciples and receives Christ. It is in danger indeed on the waters, but there would be certain death without it. Therefore, stay inside the boat and call upon God. And when all good advice fails and the rudder is useless and the spread of the sails presents more of a danger than an, than an advantage, when all human help and strength have been abandoned, then the only recourse left for the sailors is to cry out to God. How beautiful the, the insights of the fathers are regarding these passages. Let's take a look at the epistle text given to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse 9 through 17. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Brethren, we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to God's grace, which has been given to me as a wise builder, I laid the foundation and another builds upon it. But let everyone take care how he builds upon it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. But if anyone builds upon this foundation with gold, silver, gems, wood, hay, straw, the work of each one shall be made manifest, for the Lord's day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed in fire. And the work of each man, whoever he shall be, shall be tested in fire. If the work any man built on the foundation stands, he shall receive a reward. If someone's work burns down, he shall suffer its loss. Yet he himself shall be saved, though only by passing so to speak, through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys this temple of God, God will destroy him. For holy is God's temple, and this holy temple you are. So beautiful, Father Sebastian, uh, this passage from 1 Corinthians. And I just would just 
I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to go back and give us the context here. But how just as we're reading this, that this understanding first at the very first in verse nine, brethren, we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building, according to God's grace, which has been given to me as a wise builder. So now St. Paul is saying he's participating, the co-worker with God in the building of the temple, which are the people of God, right? The church. And then, but the text goes on to talk about how each one of us is called to participate in this act of building. So we are at once the temple of God, and yet we are also invited by God to build that temple. There's a beautiful image especially in light of Peter being asked to walk upon the waters of this world, if you will, in the gospel text. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of, our, of ourselves. Give us that historical context here in 1 Corinthians. Why is St. Paul saying what he's saying? Well, the Corinthians, they were a church founded by Paul on his second journey. He passed over into Corinth, into Greece, and there find, founds his church out of a synagogue. And, and then... A few years later, on his third journey, he has not yet returned to Corinth. He's in Ephesus, and he hears in Ephesus, which is just across the Adriatic there, he hears about the problems in Corinth. And the problems there are not simply organic, you know, developments. There are some false teachers who have arrived and begun to influence the church in his absence. And they are teaching a false gospel, as Paul describes it in the, in the first chapter. They're teaching things that Paul did not teach, and they are corrupting the church. They're teaching them to do things that Paul didn't teach them to do. And, and so what happens is Paul writes to them this letter appealing to them and say, look, I, I, assigned by God, founded the church there. I built this foundation. That foundation is the true gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself. I delivered the word of God to you. And, of course, we know they were, they were converted, they were baptized, and, they, you know, and he, he left them as a full-functioning you know, sacramental community. But now, in his absence, the church there in Corinth has begun to develop like almost like a tree that's kind of malforming now, not properly pruned and growing, is starting to grow in odd and un, uh, unfortunate ways. And so Paul warns them about this, and he says, you know, the, you need to be careful how you build on that foundation that I laid for that, for that community and individually. He used the, the, the uh, image of fire here, Father, and I can, it seems as though as the church is kind of placing these two texts in the gospel, the waves are hitting up against the church. And while the majority of the church fathers talk about those waves as kind of the work of the evil one and the passions of the world and so forth, uh, there's also the sense of purification. And certainly this comes out in this idea of fire and it's passing through the fire. Uh, and, and, and we can certainly understand that in terms of kind of passing through uh, this purification in our life of all these passions that assail us. Why does he use this image, in particularly regarding you know, in here regarding the church uh, and his words to Corinth? Well, fire, like you said, it's, it's purification. Today, I think most of our people are a bit unfamiliar with this. It's just not part of our society anymore. We don't purify with fire. It's just not a thing we do. Not too long ago, in the medical you know community, they would use fire and lots of heat to purify things, but. 
so, but in the ancient world, when, and when the Israelites, when they brought things into their community, it, pa- it was passed through fire. And if it couldn't, it would pass through fire and they would use water to purify it. But so the image here is, you know, I built this foundation, this, this priceless foundation, this basically a foundation of gold for you. And you're, the initial church that I founded there is the gold. And each individual one, each one of you is like a nugget of gold, if you want to use that image. And what you will do next with that will determine whether you are going to keep or lose what you've done. Are you doing things, building yourself up into a temple of the Holy Spirit? And they're also each other, all building like stones, the temple of the living God, building the, the church in Corinth up as a temple of God in Corinth. And if you're building it up, with what are you building? Are you building with things that are actually worthless, things that will not last? Are you building it with the teachings of Christ or, and, and with, with virtue and walking the ways of Christ? Or are you doing other things that are causing the church to grow in Corinth maybe, but not properly? Maybe they've, and we find in, in Corinth actually is a problem. They're not teaching the doctrines as Paul taught them. And they're allowing the people, these leaders in Corinth are allowing the people to go back to the pagan temples. Oh yeah, it's okay to do that once in a while. Go to the cult prostitutes. Oh yeah, it's okay. And, and, the, and the vision might be, well, that, that'll help the church grow. If we just remove some of these restrictions, then the pagans will just flood into this place. If we allow them to do whatever they want. And, and Paul says, yeah, that kind of growth, you may see growth, but it's, it's worthless. It's stubble, it's hay. And just like a house, you, know, you have a great foundation. If you build the walls out of stubble and, uh, you know, of, and wood and things like that, that doesn't last in the long run. You have to build it with something that is, is good and, and strong. And for Paul, he's using this image of a temple, which, you know, the temple is lined with gold and beautiful jewels. And, and these are things that you can pass through fire. And at the end, the, the jewels, the, the gold, these things are, are there after they pass through fire, whereas the, the rest of the stuff is burned up. Of course, the gold is oftentimes used as a symbol of, of the divine life, especially in iconography. You know, it's, it's, it's such a, a beautiful image of the, of the building of the church, which each layer of stone acts as a foundation. So while it's, it remains on the foundation, which is Christ, each piece is allowed to participate in that foundation for that which is placed upon it. Each one of us then participates in that way. As, as St. Peter talks about in his epistle, we are, we are living stones. Uh, so we're not, just dead, we're not just the dead temple in Jerusalem, if you will, built out of rock. But no, Christ has come to enliven us, to fill us up, that we as a community may be built into the temple of God. There's another thing, Father, you mentioned about, and maybe we can close with this, about you know, making sure that we're building it, we're building it right. You know, I find oftentimes that people don't believe that they're important in the church. And whether they come to church one Sunday or not doesn't really matter. They come because I want to come. But you know, if you look at this image of the church, you remove one of those stones, which, which is functioning as a foundation piece for that which is built upon it. You're going to have a major problem with the structure of the building. And I think this is a real struggle and challenge for 
us today in our church to realize that we are an organic body in the church. That means an organism, which means that each piece of the body is critically important for the health of the whole body. And when you remove one piece of that, uh, you're going to have a problem. I mean, think about a tree. If I, if I strip the leaves off the tree, the tree is going to die. If I take the bark off the trunk, the tree is going to die. If I, you see, so each part of the body of Christ is essential. And those are my words. That's St. Paul talking. And each member of the body, even if it looks like it's not as important, is, is essential for the health of the body. As we have a real uh, um, responsibility, I should say, in the church for each other. And it matters what we do with that responsibility. Christ has given us so much that we are now invited to become sons of God in the one who is the Son of God, Christ Jesus. To him be glory both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.